Well, we are in the beginning of the seventh cycle of parallel visions. The way we have been looking at Revelation is that it contains seven series of parallel symbolic visions that are actually showing us the same events, but from different vantage points, different perspectives, different camera angles, if you will. And we're now in the 19th chapter here, the beginning of the 7th. And from this point on, John's sole focus in describing the visions that he is seeing all concern the second coming of Jesus Christ with all of its intended consequences. Like, we finally arrived to this place. I'm, I'm so excited uh, uh, for this portion of the scripture, though I'm a little saddened that we're coming close to the end here uh, of our series. But we're here. At the second coming. It's what we've staked all our hope and faith in. It's what fills the substance of a lot of the worship songs and hymns that we sing. It is what we profess in our creeds and confess with our mouths his coming again. It's what we cling to in faith as we believe and trust the very words of Jesus when he, when he was with his disciples. And he said, I'm leaving, but listen, I'm coming again and I'm going. And where I go, you will be also. I'm going to come to take you there with me. Brothers and sisters, if there is no second coming, then our faith is in vain. How pitied are we to be? But the gospel professes this singular truth. Jesus is coming again. Amen? Jesus is coming again. And that second coming of Christ is going to bring to completion All of God's plan to bring our salvation to its intended destination. Eternal life. But his return is not only going to consummate the final salvation of God's people. But it is also going to bring about the final condemnation of all his enemies. Salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. And we've been looking at that throughout our time in this series. You cannot experience the fullness of salvation and eternal life and the glories of the new heavens and the new earth without the permanent exclusion of everything sinful and wicked. What Jesus has done in his return here is to ensure the complete eradication of everything, brothers and sisters, that could ever threaten your salvation. Judgment has to happen in order for us to experience the fullness of life that he has promised us. So as we look at today's passage about Christ's return, and this is what we call the final battle, I I want you to see that there is a picture being presented to us here, a portrait, if you will, that is being drawn for us of a Jesus that sadly too many Christians don't spend a lot of time thinking about. But frankly, it's not really a concept that a lot of Christians have when they think about Jesus. Today, we're going to look at the portrait that John sees in his vision here of the divine warrior, the returning king who's come to vanquish all of his enemies. And our main point is this, is that we need to capture a vision of the glory of the returning and triumphant king that will fuel our worship, obedience, and devotion to him. Hear the words of the Lord, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a, new, uh, has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. These are the words of the Lord. Now, we've been treating chapters 12 through 22 of Revelation like kind of like the second half of the book, the second act of this end times play, if you will. In chapter 12, we were introduced to the main characters. We saw there the woman and the child. The woman representative of the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the child, the personification of the promised Messiah. And then we were introduced to the great red dragon, which is Satan, whom we were told is the deceiver of the whole world. And he sought to destroy the child, but the child, we were told there, ascended into heaven, referring to Jesus' ascension, which destroyed and defeated the power of, of Satan and cast him out of heaven to the earth. And what does the enemy do? What does the dragon do if not turn his hatred, his hostility, and his malevolence against the people of God? He persecutes them. And the way he does that is by employing two allies, which we were introduced to, two new characters in the 13th chapter. The first beast that rises out of the sea and the second beast that rises out of the earth, which is also called the false prophet. One beast to destroy the church, one beast to deceive the church of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 17, he calls forth another character in, to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. And that's known as the great prostitute, Babylon the Great. She makes her appearance and what she attempts to do is to seduce the saints of God away from their devotion to Jesus Christ. The complete cast of characters, as we've seen, has been on the stage, have been performing. But now we're seeing one by one they begin to exit. And the way they do that is in reverse order from which they were introduced. In chapter 18, we saw the demise of Babylon. Babylon the Great is fallen. She exits the stage. Today, we're going to see the destruction of the beast. 
He's going to make his exit off the stage. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 20. The great red dragon is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And he is going to exit the stage of history. And who's left? We're left with the same two characters that we started with. The woman and the child. The church and Jesus Christ. The bride and the bridegroom who are going to live happily ever after. Isn't that awesome? Like there's no greater story than that. But it's not fiction. It's not a fable. It's, it's reality. It's what the saints of God are going to experience. And now here in chapter 19 and 20, we're going to be introduced to the second coming of Jesus Christ, but also to the final battle. And these two chapters are going to show us the same event, but from two different vantage points. And not just two different vantage points, there are two different subjects that are in view. Picture this camera angle now, and it focused on one character. Here in chapter 19, it's going to be the beast, but in chapter 20, it's going to be the demise of the great red dragon. Now today's passage that we read divides easily into three sections, but we'll look at it in two parts. The first part, we're going to look at this depiction of the divine warrior, and then we're going to look at those next two portions uh, of the vision that are outlined there as the invitation to the final battle and the outcome of the final battle. Let's talk about the divine warrior. It's not the first time we see this phrase that verse one that this first uh, verse opens up with. Then I saw heaven opened. Then I saw becomes the phrase that introduces us to a new vision that's John John is seeing. It's not a consecutive or chronological vision. It's just next in the sequence of which these visions were given to him. We saw this phrase. Then I saw heaven opened first in this format in chapter one. When John is taken by the Spirit to the heavenly realms and what he sees is a door opened in heaven. Then in chapter 11, verse 19, God's temple, it says, was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. And then again we saw in chapter 15, verse 5, he says, After this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness is op- in heaven is opened. So here in chapter 19, what do we have? Heaven was fully opened. What's going on here? It's that heaven holds no more secrets. It is the ultimate unveiling. And what John now sees with his eyes is absolutely breathtaking. It is awe-inspiring. It is so spectacular. What he sees is the second coming of the divine warrior. The king of glory who's arrayed for the final battle. It's a stunning picture. Brothers and sisters, it's a picture that needs to captivate our hearts. It's one that we need to put before us continually. It's one that demands our focus and our attention. It's a portrait of the king returning in glory. Using symbols that declare his universal sovereignty, his absolute divinity, and his guaranteed triumph over his enemies. What we see in these first few verses here are four general characteristics of this divine warrior. His emblems, his names, his mission, and his army. Let's look at four of the emblems that are mentioned here in regards to this divine warrior. Right there in verse 11, in his vision, he says, Behold, a white horse. 
a white horse. This king of glory is mounted on a white horse. Before John sees the rider, he sees a white horse. Now, white is a deeply symbolic color that we have explored a number of times in Revelation. White symbolizes righteousness and purity or a reward for purity. The saints are said to receive white garments, right? White, symbolic of their cleanliness cleanliness before God, their righteousness in Christ Jesus. But there was also a contemporary understanding for these first century readers with the symbol of the white horse. Julius Caesar, in his first military campaign where he achieved a a tremendous victory, rode into the great city, Rome, being pulled on a chariot with white horses. And then after him, what do we see? Every every emperor and every military leader and general, after a, a great military campaign and success, rode into the great city of Rome on a white steed. So this is symbolic, then, of victory, of conquest, of triumph. Jesus is the one who is seated on this white horse. He is the triumphant, conquering warrior. Notice this is happening even before the final battle scene. Because his triumph is assured. His victory is certain. His conquest is all but guaranteed completely. He's on the white horse. He's victorious. And this is not the scene of Jesus riding on the donkey, right? That we... Acknowledged there on Palm Sunday, riding triumphantly into Jerusalem on his way to death. This is not the scene we have here. He's not on a donkey. He's on a white horse. It's a conquering warrior. The picture we're going to begin to see emerge here is not that of meek and mild Jesus. This is the king in all of his glory. The second emblem we see there in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, we've seen that symbol before. We saw it right back in the beginning in chapter 1. John's vision of of the glory of the Son of Man that's revealed to him right there at the island of Patmos. He sees one like the Son of Man. And one of the descriptors is that his eyes were like a flame of fire. It is the very way that Jesus introduces himself in his letter to the church of Thyatira in chapter 2. Jesus writes, these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. What does that symbolism mean? What does it signify? Signifies that Jesus is the divine judge. He perfectly sees all things. He knows all things. He rightly discerns everything. That means he can judge the spiritual condition of every single human being on the face of the earth, and he knows their condition perfectly. Furthermore, there is nothing that can be hidden from his eyes. He sees what is true. He sees what's beyond our ability to see or comprehend. His discernment is laser-like. His gaze can penetrate to the depths of the human hearts to discern the intents and motives that are found therein. There is nothing that can be hidden from his gaze. All is completely laid bare before him. That means there's no corner of your heart that he does not know. That thing that we can hide from everyone else and keep from everyone else and don't want to acknowledge that is there, he knows it. He sees it completely. It's laid bare, exposed before him. His eyes are like a flame of fire. The third emblem, 
On his head are many diadems. Now, we've seen these diadems before, but they weren't necessarily spoken of being on Christ. We saw it in chapter 13, in chapter 12, first on the, the seven heads of the dragon, seven diadems, and then in chapter 13 on the ten horns of the beast, ten diadems. And those were the, the false claims of sovereignty and rulership that both the dragon and the beast exerted on the inhabitants of the earth. But here, it says Jesus has many diadems. Now, it was common for kings to wear their crowns, their diadems, into battle. And we think of crowns, we think of these heavy, solid, golden crowns. That's not what the diadems were in these times around the first century. These were more like cloth headbands. And on these cloth headbands was the name of the region, the empire, the nation that this king ruled over. And here... There's an unspecified amount of diadems on Christ's heads. What does that mean? Speaking of his kingship, it is speaking of his rulership, and his extent is universal. It's eternal. His rule, his reign, his sovereignty, his kingship is of unparalleled and unrivaled royalty. He is the king of the entire universe. There is nothing outside of the scope of his rule and reign. And when you think about that, it should cause you to consider his supreme authority over everything. That at the voice of his command, we are to instantly obey. Because he's Lord of all. He's king of all. Many diadems. Fourthly, a clothed He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It sounds kind of gory, doesn't it? Would you wear something dipped in blood? Just think about the imagery that it evokes here. Robe dipped in blood. Why is that? Why is it dipped in blood? It's dipped in blood because it speaks to his role of executing judgment. In verse 15, we read here, one of his works is to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. We saw that in chapter 14, uh, the vision of the two harvests of the earth, that second harvest, which was the grape harvest. The angel was told to go ahead and put his sharp sickle to the earth and to harvest the grapes and then throw them into the great wine press of the fury of the wrath of God to be trodden down. And it said there that the blood flowed from the wine press to a great depth. This is a horrifying and graphic depiction of judgment and it's the fulfillment of an old testament prophecy that we looked at when we were studying chapter 14 where god would come to save his people and he'd come as a blood-stained warrior to destroy all of those who sought the destruction of his people isaiah 63 look at these first three verses who is this who comes from edom in crimson garments from basra we'll see it on screen he who is splendid in his apparel Marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness. Mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments. And stained all my apparel. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. 
symbolically portrayed as the Lord going forth in and destroying his enemies as and as he's hacking them to pieces, their blood is spattering on his garments. He is the conquering king. This is our God coming to wage the final battle. Now you can also interpret this in regards to the blood he shed on behalf of his saints at the cross, at Calvary. We can see that here, I think, clearly as well. It speaks to the shedding of his blood. And when he returns, what is he going to do? He's going to shed the blood of his enemies. So in one sense, his own blood was shed for those whom he would redeem. But in the sense of judgment, the blood that's going to be on his garments is the blood shed on all those who have refused him as Lord and King. Now, this is not Sunday school, flannel graph, kids' church Jesus, is it? <laughs> you know, we, we don't really see that depiction in our gospel project curriculum of this blood-soaked, garmented, returning king. But it is the picture, the portrait that we are being shown here and that we are to be captivated by. We are to see Christ for who he is. He is the divine warrior. And these four emblems speak to that. See, before the final battle takes place, victory is already assured. Even before the first shot is fired. And his emblems declare his universal sovereignty, absolute divinity, and guaranteed triumph over his enemies. Let's look at his names. The first name we see there is that he's called faithful and true. It's a title that is ascribed to him. We've seen that in Revelation. Jesus has been called the faithful and true witness. Now, it's not true in the sense that he's real. Faithful and true speak to his reliability, his trustworthiness. He is a trustworthy and reliable witness, testifying to the Father, testifying of his glorious gospel, testifying of his role as judge, that he's faithful and true to fulfill his promise to rescue and redeem those that are his and to judge the wicked. He's faithful to vindicate his saints. He can be trusted to keep his covenant promises. So in those earlier passages, we see him as the faithful and true witness. But now that word witness is dropped. Why is that? It's dropped because the time of witnessing is past. It's over. The time for testimony is done. The case has been made. The prosecution has made their argument. Their closing arguments. The verdict has been rendered. The sentence has been handed down. Now what is Christ doing? The faithful and true witness. He's coming to execute that judgment down to the last and final detail. A flawless execution of his judgment. It's only because Christ is faithful and true that John says that it is in righteousness that he judges and makes war. Who can refute the divine justice of Jesus Christ? Not anyone. There's no one who can doubt the justness of his cause. No one to question his motives. In righteousness he judges and makes war. The second name ascribed to him here is the word of God. We're familiar with that. Where else in the New Testament have we seen that phrase, the word of God? 
Well, there's only one New Testament writer who uses it. And that's the writer of Revelation. It's John himself, right? In the opening of his gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God. He's the living revelation of God. He is God's fullest self-disclosure. Jesus came, he said, to reveal the will of the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. His life, his teachings, his acts all showed who God is. You won't know anything about God apart from the Word of God. And apart from Jesus, the Word of God. It's quite in vogue today to question the the, the, the inerrancy of Scripture, it's, it's quite in vogue to question, you know, you know, a lot of these ancient writers here, very superstitious. Uh, you had Andy Stanley, a very popular preacher who's got a much larger platform than he deserves. And, and uh, just in his opening statement here recently of a, a very recent sermon, he threw the, the, the veracity of the Bible in question. He's saying, well, if we, if we need to look to the Bible and, and say the Bible tells us so in order to know anything about God, we're, we're kind of missing the point. Because it's not really about the Bible. It is about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we can agree to that. But how else would you know about Jesus Christ? How would you know anything about God? How would you know anything about the character and nature of God? How would you know anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ? What God requires of us. The second coming. How would we know anything apart from this inscripturated word of God? It's impossible. It's impossible. Jesus came as God's fullest disclosure. And he, and he moved men of God, right? To, to, and inspired them to write these words for us that we call the words of the living God. This is the revelation that's given to us here. And here in Revelation, this word of God is a revelation of God in his judicial role. He is the word of God now communicating with with divine authority that the judgment has come and the judgment that he's coming to render now is just and right and true. What is he coming to make known? He's coming to make known to all those who've refused him, who've refused to believe God is who he says he is, and what God has said about himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And all of these who've rejected him now at his second coming are going to acknowledge him and see that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. This is why our scripture tells us, right, that in that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess That Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will see in the fullest disclosure of whom Jesus is. He's the word of God. Look at this also. Another name. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the name written on his robe and on his thigh. Or better said on his side. Which is a strategic place when you think about it. Where is Jesus depicted in this symbol? Right, He is sitting On a white horse, right? Straddling a white horse. Well, that name would be emblazoned down his side over here for everyone to see at his appearing. This title was applied to Jesus in Revelation 17, 14. But there it was used to speak of the Lamb being the King of Kings. So it is the Lamb of God who is this returning King of Kings. The title is a superlative. To say king of kings or lord of lords is like saying he's the best of kings, the best of lords. 
It's like saying he's the kingliest king or the lordly, lordiest or lordliest lord. I don't know how you'd say it. He's the best of the best, right? There is no other. Too many of us don't have this view of Jesus. We just hold in our minds this view of the incarnated Jesus, which is ever so important, but it's like the only one we have in view, the only one we have in mind. Meek and mild, humble, suffering Jesus made his way to the cross. Again, it's an important Jesus. But if that's the only view you have of Jesus, it's a distorted view. If the only view you have is of Jesus riding on the donkey on his way to Jerusalem, then this aspect of the wrath of God and the judgment of God and this returning, conquering divine warrior is kind of offensive. Like, it doesn't match for you what you know about this meek and mild, humble Jesus on the donkey. On the contrast, though, if your only other view that you have and you hold is, is this rider on the white horse, this conquering divine warrior, then you're, you're going to have a challenge here and be lacked in understanding the elements of the incarnation and of suffering and how that applies to the Christian life. Oftentimes, I've seen lots of believers who kind of, this is the only view they have of Jesus, the rider on the white horse. Uh, they are not your humblest of Christians quite arrogant. Frankly, they're kind of jerks. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We need to have both of these views in our mind to have a full picture of Jesus Christ. Lastly, we're told that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. There's a mystery name here and and, and the secret name that's only known to Jesus Christ himself. Well, what does that tell us? I think it shows us a lot of things, but one of it, one of it here is, is, a, is, is a declaration of the divinity of Christ. He is God. Can we ever fully know God? Can we ever have a full revelation and knowledge of everything there is to know about God? Absolutely not. Absolutely. If, if we could, then he's not God. He's unfathomable. He is transcendent. He is infinite. We can't possibly know everything, but, but he's condescended to reveal to us what we do need to know concerning him and his character and what he requires, but we cannot fully know him. There's aspects of, of Jesus here that it seems to imply in this that are, are things that are going to be beyond our ability or grasp to know. But will this name be unknown forever? Well, some commentators who do believe that. Because again, stating that these are is a revelation of Jesus Christ that only belongs in God's purview in his wheelhouse. But I don't think that's the case. I think this name being referenced here is a name that will be made known, but it'll only be made known at his second coming. One of the promises that Jesus makes to the church at Pergamum, he writes this to the overcomer, he's going to give them a white stone. With a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now that new name is not a new name about them. It's not a new name for the one who receives it. It just says it's going to have a new name written on it. 
Then in chapter 22, in the new heavens and the new earth, the, the, the glory, we, we have the vision of the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ descending from heaven. And, and there's the, the tree of life that lines all of the, of the river there and all of this beautiful scene. We, we have there uh, this phrase that Christ's name is going to be written, it's going to be on the forehead of his servants who worship him. His name is going to be written on there. A new name. I think when all is said and done, this name that was previously unknown, hidden, is going to be made manifest and revealed in two ways. For some, Christ will reveal his name because they have been brought into a saving relationship with him. They will have eternal life. They're the ones who are going to receive this white stone with the new name. They're going to have his name symbolically written on their foreheads. But in another sense, for others, Christ will reveal his name only through this experience of final judgment. And Christ's name will remain unknown until that judgment occurs. His names declare his universal sovereignty, absolute divinity, and guarantee triumph over his enemies. Thirdly, his mission. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with, to strike down the nations Rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now these statements are fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We've looked at the one of, of the rod of iron, right? Breaking uh, uh, the, the rule of the nations with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2. But also in Isaiah 11.4, here's the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. There's a sharp sword in view here. This is what John saw in the opening vision there in chapter 1. The vision again of the glorified Son of Man had a sharp sword that came out of his mouth. When Jesus introduced himself in his letter to the church at Pergamum, This is exactly how he introduced himself. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The instrument of judgment, the weapon that will strike down the nations, the weapon that will, 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 will rule them with a rod of iron, better said will break or shatter them with a rod of iron, is his spoken word. His word of judgment. The word will speak and his word will instantaneously perform his command of judgment. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's his spoken word. Remember this battle. These scenes. This imagery are symbolic. Jesus doesn't literally have a sword. That is going to shoot out of his mouth. He's not literally on a white horse. Doesn't literally have a robe. Dipped in blood. They're images. They're symbols. So to say here that he's going to strike them down with the sword of his mouth. Think how much energy will be expended in the final battle to strike down the nations. How much effort will it take for the divine warrior to execute his mission of treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. I'll tell you. It's going to require as much energy and effort to be expended as is required for one word from the mouth of the warrior king this is not going to be a protracted battle this isn't going to go on for days or weeks or months 
or years, with one word, he will strike down the nations. His mission declares his universal sovereignty, absolute divinity, and a guaranteed triumph over his enemies. Now, fourthly, this fourth characteristic of his army. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So who comprises this army of heaven that's following the king? Are they angels in view? Is this the angelic army, the host of heaven that is in view here? Well, some New Testament passages indicate to us that that Jesus is going to be accompanied by his angels at his second coming to execute judgment alongside of him. Uh, Online there you see I've referenced a few of those passages. But here the army in view are not angels, not the host of heaven, but the saints of God, the redeemed, the followers of the Lamb. Because we've already seen in the parallel vision of final judgment in chapter 17 that in that final battle scene, those who accompany the Lamb are said to be those who are the called and chosen and faithful. Well, who are those? Those aren't the angels. Those are the saints of God, the redeemed of the Lamb, the followers of the Lamb. It's the bride of the Lamb. We saw at the beginning of chapter 19 that it was to the bride who was granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, which is the clothing of this army that is riding on white horses following after the Lamb. To the one who overcomes, Jesus said that they would walk with him in white and be clothed in white garments. With but one exception in Revelation, those wearing white or clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, are the saints of God. But notice that their garments are white. They're not splattered with the blood of their enemies. They're spotless. Are they even going to fight? Are they part of this battle? I mean, it says that they follow the lamb. You'd think, man, he's going down and, and he's whacking. And aren't we going to go alongside him? And I'd like to do that. I wouldn't mind swinging a broadsword and lopping off the head of the enemies of the church. Are they going to fight it all? Like they're not wearing any armor. It doesn't say that they possess any weapons. Offensive or defensive here. So if they're following him on a white horse, what role does this army play? Well, notice what it says about Jesus. He's the one doing all the fighting, isn't he? He's the one who judges and makes war. He's the one who strikes down the nations. He breaks them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Like he's doing it all. So what is this army doing? What does this army contribute Nothing. (laughs) Nothing at all. Nothing at all. I think all in view here is that this army is going to watch and worship the divine warrior. And that's it. That's it. He's going to do it all. He's going to do it all by himself, but he's not by himself, right? He's going to be accompanied by the saints, and they're going to make him look good. And I think in this perspective... That the mere presence at the final battle of this heavenly army, which are the saints of God, will be further evidence condemning all who persecuted the church and rebelled against the Lamb. We also, as faithful and true witnesses of Jesus Christ, will accompany Him on that day, and our presence will damn and condemn all those who rejected the Lamb. It's powerful. 
But he's going to do it all. He's going to do it all. Is this your view of Jesus? When you think about Jesus, do these images come to mind? Does this picture frame itself out this way? This divine conquering king of glory that is going to come on his white horse with a robe dipped in blood. He is savior, yes. But he's also the divine warrior. He's the redeemer, but he's also judge. He's the prince of peace, but he's also this returning king who will war and destroy all of his enemies. He's the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, but he is the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquers. It's not either or, it's both and. And John, John wants his recipients reading this letter, the church that's persecuted and suffering and and facing the brunt of the hostility of the beast and the deception of the false prophet and the allure of Babylon to get this picture of Jesus in their mind. So it'll fuel their worship and fuel their obedience, fuel their endurance and perseverance and devotion to Jesus Christ. This is the one that's worthy of worship. That passage right before this, John is so overwhelmed that he kind of turns to worship the angel that's showing all this. And the angel says, hey, knock it out. Don't worship me. Turn your focus and attention on the only one who's worthy to be worshipped. And then we get this scene next. He's the one that should be the object of our utmost worship. Now let's quickly move through the final battle. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Frankly, because it's brief. It's not much of a battle at all. I don't even know that we could call it a battle. It's the shortest battle in all of human history. All right? Uh, There's no engagement. There's no struggle. There's no pushback. When you think about war, right? We're in the midst of seeing this war overseas there, Russia and Ukraine, and and the invading forces have come into into Ukraine, and they're pushing back, and there's resistance, and there's struggle, and some take ground, and the others recapture ground, and all of this. None of that, none of that is in view here at the final battle. No engagement whatsoever. These enemies that are mustered to make war on the Lamb in the church will be defeated by the breath of His mouth. Plain and simple. They're utterly powerless when confronted with the unparalleled power of this king, this divine warrior. They're no match. Now the outcome of this war, you know this, was not determined here. It's not determined at the final battle. It was determined back at Jesus' first coming. On the cross. And his resurrection and his ascension. He's already conquered. He's already conquered. Now at his second coming, what was already established through his death, resurrection, and ascension, is going to be brought to its full consummation, its finality here. Now in verse 17, we have this invitation to the battle. But notice who's being invited to the battle. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings and captains, mighty men, horses, riders, flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This dinner invitation is extended by this 
angel standing in the sun. It becomes the focus. Think about an angel standing in the sun. Could be the angel of the Lord in view here. For all the birds overhead that fly overhead to see and hear the summons to this invitation. Now don't think about birds like, you know, your cute little parakeet that maybe you have in the cage. A hummingbird, a, you know, a little finch over here, sparrow. I don't, I don't really know much about birds. These birds that fly directly overhead are about birds of prey. Think about an eagle. Think about scavenger birds, buzzards and vultures. This is what's in view here. These birds are summoned to engorge themselves on the flesh of all the dead at this final battle. It's a graphic picture. It's a gruesome picture, frankly. We saw another supper just last week, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is like a a macabre parody of the marriage supper. Because there, it was the saints of God who were invited to that supper to feast with the Lamb. Like this is the glories of heaven, right? It's what we long for. We will dine. It's what this meal that we partake of each week is a foretaste of. But here, there's another supper. It's called the Great Supper of God. And the ones invited here now are not the saints, but birds. And you ask, what's on the menu? Well, what's on the menu? Pieces of flesh. Flesh. The lamb's enemies here are depicted as lying exposed on the field of battle to be feasted upon by birds. It's all of this flesh. Now, the the word in the Greek is actually plural, fleshes. So what's in view here is like ripped up, torn up bodies. Picture your favorite zombie apocalyptic movie there. It's kind of what's in view here. I mean, it's a gruesome, gruesome scene. Birds eating eyes and torn off limbs. It's horrific. And here men, all men, regardless of their status or position, are dead on this field. And what's the point of this symbolic vision? Why is this even here? I think it's another image here of comprehensive judgment. It's all men, both small and great, rich or poor. It's all in view. Like the, the, None are exempt from God's justice. Kings aren't going to be able to wield their authority to be exempt from that judgment. Military men, captains, and horsemen, and, and cavalry are not going to be able to use their military might to evade this coming judgment. Neither rich, nor poor, nor slave, or free. No one will get out of this. And it's so comprehensive that not anyone is left to be able to bury the dead. Not a one. I said this last week. You will either feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Or you will be feasted upon at the great supper of God. See, only two options for all of humanity. You don't want to be on the menu at the great supper of God. I think the second point of this symbolic vision here is to to again reveal to us this element of final judgment, the retributive justice uh, of God here. When you think about uh, the image in chapter 11, the two witnesses, okay, that were the personification of the church's role of being witnesses, of, of preaching the gospel and advancing the gospel throughout the earth. 
when they have finished their testimony, we saw there in chapter 11, it says that the beast will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. That at some point here near to the end, it will seem as if the church will be destroyed. This is what's in view here of the whole armies of the earth gathering to assemble themselves, as it says in chapter 20, against the camp of the saints. To destroy them. That's, that's, that's exactly what the great red dragon wants. That's what the allies of the red dragon want, to destroy the church. And at some point, there before the return of Christ, that's going to happen. And it says symbolically that their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city for three and a half days... And the inhabitants of the earth refuse to bury them. In fact, they rejoice at seeing the church dead lying on the street. What's in view here? This this massive persecution that results in it seeming like the church is utterly destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth. Where the people of God are persecuted by them. They're mocked and humiliated. Leaving a body exposed on the street is the ultimate sign of disgrace and shame and dishonor. And what's happening here? God is avenging his people. And he's doing to them what they did to the church. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. This is God's justice. And it is completely fair. It's completely fair. Let's look at the outcome of the battle lastly in 19 and on. Because here now what's in view is the, the focus of this final battle which is The subject is the beast. The beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Again, this final battle scene, not the first time we've seen it. At the closing of the sixth bowl, what did we find there? The whole armies of the earth were gathered. In this case, they were gathered by the three demonic spirits that came forth from the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. Their intent was to deceive the kings of the whole earth for them to assemble. Now, we know ultimately it is the sovereign God who is orchestrating all these things. They are mere pawns. In his plan. But they're the ones doing the deception to assemble them. For this particular great battle. Also called Armageddon. In chapter 17. We saw the kings of the earth. Handing over their power to the beast. Also to make war on the lamb. Same event. Different perspectives. So here is another look at this final battle. From a different angle. But here it's about the destruction of the beast. And his lieutenant there. The false prophet. Uh, In chapter 20, we're going to see the destruction of the dragon. But here the beast is in view. He's marshalling the forces of the world for this battle. To once and for all destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Now we've called the beast and and referred to the beast and described it as as the satanically inspired state or rulers. uh, Corrupt kings, wicked kings and rulers who who persecute the church of Jesus Christ and seek out her, her destruction. And and that's what's in view of summoning the earth to this final battle. But what happens? They're captured. That's all it says. No fight. No skirmish. Nothing even begins. Just says, 
The beast and the false prophet were captured. And then what? They're thrown in the lake of fire. That's the final battle. Kind of underwhelming, isn't it? It's not what I remember reading in, in Tim LaHaye's book or, you know, the Left Behind series and all that stuff. The lamb swinging his sword and resistance and the church. None of that. He's captured. He's seized. He's tossed in the lake of fire. The brevity is breathtaking, isn't it? I mean, it truly is. It's over before it even begins. But what about all those who allied themselves with the beast, who said who, that they worship the beast and bear the mark of the beast? Well, it says here that they're killed. Not only are they killed, they are feasted upon by the birds. Well, Dan, are you saying that that's pretty much the end of all humanity? They're just going to die? A physical death? No. No, there's going to be a resurrection for these people. There is an appointment, which we will see in the next couple weeks at the great white throne judgment of God. They have a reservation with the lake of fire. Their outcome is not going to be good. Is all of this to be taken literally? Is there a literal lake of fire? Is all this literally going to happen? You know the answer already, right? No. This is apocalyptic language. It's symbolic. It's figurative. But the symbols stand for something real and substantive. The reality that is being conveyed here is always more substantial than the symbols used to illustrate it. The reality behind the images and the symbols presented to us here of final judgment, brothers and sisters, are going to be far worse than you and I could possibly imagine. So these images of a lake of fire burning with sulfur, what does sulfur do but make it, make it be hotter and smell a foul stench is a symbol portraying something that is even far worse than that. Jesus talked about them being cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's horrific. A horrific end to all those who rejected Christ, who persecuted God's people, who killed them and worshipped the beast. So here's this portrait. Christ, the divine warrior who is returning soon. Are you ready for that, brothers and sisters? I know every generation of Christian has, has heard a preaching on that Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. And I can tell you this, he's coming a lot sooner than when this was written to the first century believers. We are much closer to the return of the divine warrior, the conquering king, than these first century believers were. So are we ready for that? Do our lives live in view of that glorious return? Do we have this portrait of the king burned in our minds and hearts that evokes a, a worship and a devotion and an affection for him? That fuels obedience that will cause us to endure no matter how hard it gets out here in this world. And it's fixing to get a whole lot harder. Don't be deceived into thinking that there's going to be a glory day, a golden era of the church. That's not in view here in Revelation. No, no. It's, what's going to be in view here is like towards the very end there, it's going to look like the church has been defeated. 
But it's all by God's design and all according to plan. Have you submitted yourself to the rule and reign of the returning king? I close with this scripture passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here Paul is describing Christ's return. He's describing this very scene of the final battle. And look what he says in verse 7 and on. And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That, w- that day will be a terrifying day for all those who have rejected him. But what a glorious day for the saints of God who will be following the lamb wherever he goes. And in this case, they are following the lamb as he returns in glory to destroy his enemies and the enemy of God's people. May you and I be numbered among those who will marvel at our glorious returning king on that day.